Welcome, everyone. Whoa, hey. Um, you're going to be able to hear. Uh, welcome to uh, the first official event of this quarter's new writing series. Um, thanks to the uh, Department of Literature and to the Dean's Office of Arts and Humanities for supporting our series. Um, I'm going to try to work this thing out. Uh, and uh, Thanks also to um, to the Guys Library Special Collections. Um, we are recording these events, and I should remind you that you can hear them uh, once you've gotten your mind blown here. You can take a, two weeks off, and they'll be processed, and they'll be available for you. So um, we have two uh, incredible readers tonight, and. Um, we have two incredible introducers as well. Um, so, uh, introducing uh, first, introducing Maggie will be Ben Siegel, and then uh, Kendall Grady will arrive, and, <laughs> and we'll introduce Daniel. Uh, so, um, let's go, Ben. Are you ready to? Uh, uh, and as he's walking up. Um, there are books available from both our authors today. So, and the bookstore is. Present. Hi, bookstore. Wait, does that mean I'm going now? Yeah, you. Yeah, first. Oh, okay, I'm going first. Gotcha. I'm sorry, I thought we were doing first. Yes, okay. I mean, I can just introduce you. Oh, you're waiting for an introducer. I'm sorry. I'm, yeah, just, yeah, I'm yeah. just like spacing out. Yeah. Yeah. Nice to meet you. It will be nice yeah. to meet you. Okay, yeah, yeah, hi, okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yes, I just we... was spacing out, so I missed that part. Okay, okay, okay. cool. Cool. Um, <laughs> you're really tall. Um, <laughs> yeah, lower it way down for me. Yeah. All right. Um, so, um, this is a really big honor for me to introduce Maggie Nelson, whose work it, I, I really love and who I've been reading for a while and um, really excited by um, the different kinds of things that she's been doing. And I feel like I've had to do a couple of these different introductions, and I always get stuck with the people that. Well, because maybe this is like where my own interests are, but like that do everything and that, that are really difficult to condense into like, uh, this is a great poet who has explored this thing a lot. It's like, this is someone who does everything and I'm excited about everything and I can't really <laughs> talk about it in a way that's going to introduce you to it. Um, so, um, but I think there are some sort of through lines um, in, um, so uh, Maggie Nelson's work ranges from like, straight up poetry to pretty standard, not standard, but like, like academic, academic um, writing to weird hybrid stuff in between to prose memoir stuff. It does like sort of everything. Um, but there's these, uh, there are um, certain tensions that are constantly sort of in, throughout. Um, tensions between a conversational and a more academic tone, um, 
tensions between a, a, a desire to get really close to the very deeply personal, the sort of uh, vulnerable, and, and also to then talk about the very universal, or to talk about sort of art with a capital A and, or, and, and the, the deeply um, uh, subjective uh, personal experience, um, both you know, just like as a living human being and also as someone who is experiencing art and, um, and trying to work through it and trying to make it. Um, and, and just the whole sort of diversity of her work is all in a conversation with itself and with the sort of moment that she's <coughs> in. Um, uh, and this sort of ability to, to be always herself and always really brilliant and, um, I don't know, like really warm at the same time um, throughout all these different range of, of practices um, is part of why she's one of my favorite people to read on a regular basis. And so I, um, I can't wait to see what she's going to share with us today. <laughs> so thank you. Ben and I have a, oh wait, I'm gonna get my clock device here. Um, we've had an online correspondence, but we have not yet met, so that's really thrilling to um, meet him. And also to be here, hi everybody. I'm thrilled to be in San Diego. Um, some familiar faces and some not. Um, Y'all can hear me okay? Okay, great. Well, um, what am I gonna do? I'm gonna read, um, I'm gonna read, I was gonna read some poems, but now I'm not, I'm not feeling those. So I'm just gonna read from this uh, new book uh, that's gonna come out in about a year, probably in April, May next year. And uh, and I think, you know, I guess I, it's, uh, that was a good introduction, I think, and so far as, hi, I'm I didn't see it before. Um, and then this book is uh, another, just another instance of trying to uh, do what I do, but do it a little bit differently in terms of this whole uh, kind of uh, negotiation or, or smushing together of um, the intimate and the theoretical, or as, as he was saying, I, I'm, I don't know if I'd say the universal, but you know, something about anecdote, I guess, in this particular manuscript, anecdote. Um, Kind of lived anecdote, <laughs> lived daily anecdote, and then the theories that I've found so sustaining to me, in, in particular. And even though I've taught, um, you know, feminist and queer theory kind of academically for many years, and I've often taught it as that, like together, um, uh, I've never really tried to make a kind of um, a very kind of direct address um, uh, in, in a sustained fashion. So this project both does that, um, and it also uh, I guess I'll just say about it too that it, it, it started as many projects do when you're trying to do something else. I was trying to write a book about freedom and I started a chapter on East Sedgwick and notions of paranoia and freedom. And then I had also just had a baby and so I was also keeping this kind of, um, I don't know, diaristic thing of like just in little bits of time that I was getting to write. And so it, it really started ending up um, kind of weaving together this ever-expanding essay I was writing on Sedgwick and Paranoia and Freedom with this more diaristic writing, and it came up with this manuscript. So um, I'm gonna read a little bit from the center of, we're just kind of in the middle of everything, and I'm not gonna tell you anything, you'll just get the idea of what's going on, so. Uh, I've heard that back in the day, Rita Mae Brown once tried to convince fellow lesbians to abandon their children in order to join the movement. But generally speaking, even in the most radical feminist and or lesbian separatist circles, there have always been children around. Sherry Moraga, Audre Lorde, Audrey and Rich, Karen Finley, Pussy Riot, the list could go on and on. Yet rather than fade away with the rise of queer parenthood of all stripes, the tired binary that places 
quote, femininity, reproduction, and normativity on one side, and masculinity, sexuality, and queer resistance on the other, end quote, has lately re reached a kind of apotheosis, often posing as a last desperate stand against homo and heteronormativity both. In his polemic, No Future, Lee Edelman argues that, quote, queerness names the side of those not fighting for the children, the side outside the consensus by which all politics confirms the absolute value of reproductive futurism, end quote. This is still him talking, fuck the social order and the child in whose name we're all collectively terrorized. Fuck Annie. Fuck the wait from La Miz. Fuck the poor innocent kid on the net. Fuck laws with both capital L's and with small. Fuck the whole symbolic network of symbolic relations and the future that serves as their prop. Or to use an artist friend's more succinct slogan, don't produce and don't reproduce. I know that Edelman's talking about the child, capital C, not children per se, and I know my artist friend is likely more con concerned with jamming the capitalist status quo than with prohibiting the act of childbirth. I too feel like jamming a stick in someone's eye every time I hear protecting the children used as a rationale for all kinds of nefarious agendas, from arming kindergarten teachers to dropping a nuclear bomb on Iran to gutting all social safety nets to ransacking what's left of the world's fossil fuel supply. But why bother fucking this child when we could be fucking the specific forces that mobilize and crouch behind its image? Reproductive futurism needs no more disciples. The basking in the punk allure of no future won't suffice either, as if all that's left for us to do is sit back and watch while the gratuitously wealthy and greedy shred our country and our planet crowing all the while about how lucky the jealous roaches are to get the crumbs that fall from their banquet. Fuck them, I say. There's like white space in that. Okay. Um, at the close of his novel, Mad Love, Andre Breton writes a letter to his infant daughter, a letter which, despite my previously stated reservations about such addresses, has always moved me. Above all, Breton writes, let the idea of family be buried. You were thought of as possible, as certain, in the very moment when, in a love deeply sure of itself, a man and a woman wanted you to be. If there's anything queers know about babies, it's this wanting you to be. Insemination after insemination, wanting you to be. Climbing up on the cold exam table, abiding the sting of the catheter threaded through the opal slit of my cervix, the familiar cramp of thawed sperm pooling directly into my uterus, you holding my hand month after month in devotion, in perseverance. They're probably shooting egg whites, I say, tears sprouting. Shh, you say, shh. The first few times we do the procedure, I come decked out with good luck charms. Sometimes after the nurse dims the lights and leaves the room. Um, you hold me as I make myself come. You come in a good moment. <laughs> you hold me as I make myself come. The point isn't romance as much as it is to suck the semen upwards, even though we know it's already as far up as it can go. As the months go by, however, I start leaving the charms at home. Eventually, I am lucky if I make it to the class I'm teaching with the right books in my satchel. So scrambled have I become by all the early morning temperature taking, impossible to read ovulation predictor kits, the torturous examination of every spin-like excretion exiting my body the sharp dismay and frustration wrought by the first smudge of menstrual blood. Frustrated with our costly, ineffective approach, we off-road for a few months with a noble friend 
who generously agrees to be our donor, trading the cold metal table for the comfort of our bed and pricey vials of a stranger's sperm for our friend's free specimen, <laughs> which he leaves in our bathroom in a squat glass jar that used to hold Paul Newman salsa. <laughs> One month our donor friend tells us he has to go out of town for his 25th college reunion. Not wanting to lose the month's egg, we trudge back to the bank. We track the egg's progress via ultrasound. It looks bulbous and beautiful and ready to burst out of its follicle in the late afternoon. But by the next morning, there's no sign of it, not even a trace of fluid from its ruptured sac. I am beyond frustrated, beyond despair. But Harry, always the optimist, insists it might not be too late. The nurse concurs. Knowing I have a bad habit of deeming myself lost and getting off the freeway one exit before I would have found my way, I decide once again to join them. This manuscript has quotes in the margin, so I don't know how to read them to you. This is Julia Kristeva, quote, single or lesbian motherhood is one of the most violent forms taken by the rejection of this symbolic outlined above, as well as one of the most fervent divinizations of maternal power, all of which cannot help but trouble an entire moral and legal order without proposing an alternative to it. Given that one-third of American families are currently headed up by single mothers, and the census doesn't even ask about two mothers or any other form of kinship, if there's anyone in the house called mother and no father, your household counts as single mother, you'd think the symbolic order would be showing a few more dents by now. <laughs> but Kristeva is not alone in her, her hyperbole. For a more disorienting take on the topic, I recommend Jean Baudrillard's The Final Solution, in which Baudrillard argues that assisted forms of reproduction donor insemination, surrogacy, IVF, etc., along with the use of contraception, herald the suicide of our species <clears throat> insofar as they detach reproduction, reproduction from sex, thus turning us from, quote, mortal sexed beings into clone-like messengers of an impossible immortality. So-called artificial insemination, Baudrillard argues, is linked with, quote, the abolition of everything within us that is human. <laughs> our desires, our deficiencies, our neuroses, our dreams, our disabilities, our viruses, our lunacies, our unconscious, and even our sexuality, all the features which make us specific living beings, end quote. Honestly, I find it more embarrassing than enraging to read Baudrillard, Zizek, Badu, and other philosophers of the moment pontificating on how we might save ourselves from the humanity annihilating threat of the turkey baster, <laughs> which no one uses, by the way, the preferred tool is an oral syringe, in order to protect the fate of this endangered sexed being. And by sexed, make no mistake, they mean one of the two available options. Here's Zizek describing the type of sexuality that would fit an evil world. Quote, in December 2006, this is Zizek, the New York City authorities declared that the right to choose one's gender, and so, if necessary, to have the sex change operation performed, is one of the inalienable human rights. And so the ultimate difference, the transcendental difference that grounds the very human identity has thus turned into something open to manipulation. Master Bath, Master I can't even read his words. Master Bathon, Master Bathon is the ideal form of sexual activity for this transgendered subject. Fatally estranged from the transcendental difference that grounds human identity, the transgendered subject is barely human, condemned forever to idiotic. This is him, quote, idiotic masturbatory enjoyment in lieu of true love, which renders us human. For as Zizek holds in homage to Badu, quote, it is love which is the encounter of the two, 
which transubstantiates idiotic masturbatory enjoyment into an event proper. End quote. These are the voices that pass for radicality in our time. <laughs> Let us leave them to their love. Their event proper. 2011, the summer of our changing bodies. Me, now four months on pre pregnant, you six months on T. That's a good slip of the tongue, me on pregnant. Me four months on pregnant, you six months on T. We pitch out in our inscrutable hormonal soup for Fort Lauderdale to stay for a week at the junky beachside Sheridan in monsoon <coughs> season so that you can have top surgery by a good surgeon and recover. Less than 24 hours after we arrive, they're snapping a sterile green hat on your head, a party hat, the nice nurse says, and wheeling you away. While you were under the knife, I drink gritty hot chocolate in the waiting room and watch Diana Naya try to swim from Florida to Cuba. She doesn't make it, even in her shirt cage. But you do. You emerge four hours later, hilariously zonked on drugs, trying in vain to play the host while slipping in and out of consciousness. Your whole torso more tightly bound than you've ever managed yourself. A drain hanging off each side. Two pouches that fill up over and over again with blood stuff the color of cherry Kool-Aid. To save money over the week, we cook our food in the hotel bathroom on a hot plate. One day we drive to a sports chalet and buy a little tent to set up on the beach because the beachside cabanas cost too much money. While you sleep, I amble down to the beach and set up the tent and then try and read Eve Sedgwick's A Dialogue on Love Inside. But it's like a nylon sweat lodge in there, and neither I nor the four-month fetus can tolerate it. <laughs> I have started showing, which is delightful. Maybe there will be a baby. One night we splurge in our sober way and have $8 virgin strawberry daiquiris at the infinity pool, which is stocked with Europeans on cheap vacation packages. The air is hot and lavender with a night storm coming in. There is always a night storm coming in. Frat brothers and sorority sisters throng every fried fish joint on the boardwalk. The crowds are loud and repulsive and scary, but we are protected by our force field. On the third day of healing, we drive to the second largest mall in the world and walk for hours, even though I am dizzy and exhausted from early pregnancy and the suffocating heat, and you are just barely over the lip of the Vicodin. At the mall, I go into motherhood maternity and try and close with one of those gelatin strap-on bellies they have so you can see what you'll look like as you grow big. Wearing this strap-on belly, I try on a fuzzy white wool sweater with a bow at the sternum, the kind that makes your baby look like a present. <laughs> I buy this sweater and wear it all winter. You buy some loungy Adidas pants that look hot on you. Over and over again, we empty your dreams into little Dixie cups and flush the blood stuff down the hotel toilet. I've never loved you more than I do then, with your Kool-Aid dreams, your bravery in going under the knife to live a better life, a life of wind on skin. You're nodding off while propped up on a throne of hotel pillows so as not to disturb your stitches. The king's sleep, we call it. One night in our hotel bed, we watch X-Men on pay-per-view. Afterwards, we debate assimilation versus revolution. <laughs> I'm no cheerleader for assimilation per se, but in the movie, the assimilationists were advocating nonviolence and identification with the other in that bastardized Buddhist way that gets me every time. <laughs> you express sympathy for the revolutionaries who argue, stay freaky and blow them up before they come for you. Because no matter what they say, the truth is they want you dead, and you're fooling yourself if you think otherwise. This is from the movie, Professor. I can't stop 
not thinking about all the others out there, all the minds that I touched. I could feel them, their isolation, their hopes, their ambitions. We could start something incredible, Eric. We could help them. Eric, can we? <laughs> Identification, that's how it starts. And it ends up, it ends with being rounded up, experimented on, and then eliminated. Professor, listen to me very carefully, my friend. Killing Shaw will not bring you peace. Eric, peace was never an option. And so we banter good-naturedly, yet somehow allow ourselves to get polarized into a needless binary. That's what we both hate about fiction, or at least crappy fiction. It purports to provide occasions for thinking through complex issues, but really it has predetermined the terms, stuffed a narrative full of false choices and hooked you on them, rendering you less able to see out, to get out. While we talk, we say words like nonviolence, assimilation, threats to survival, preserving the radical. But when I think about it now, I hear only the background buzz of our trying to explain something to each other, to ourselves, about our lived experiences to date on this shifting, peeled, endangered planet. As is often the case, the intensity of our need to be understood distorts our positions and backs us further into the cage. Do you want to be right, or do you want to connect? Ask couples therapists everywhere. Deleuze says, the answer, is not, the answer is not to answer questions. It's just to get out, to get out of it. Flipping channels on a different day, we land on a reality TV show featuring a breast cancer patient recovering from a double mastectomy. It's uncanny to watch her perform the same actions we're now performing. <coughs> emptying her drains, waiting patiently for her unbinding after a week, but with opposite emotions. You feel unburdened, euphoric, reborn. The woman on TV fears, weeps, and grieves. We understand. Our last night at the Sheridan, we have dinner at the astoundingly overpriced casual Mexican restaurant on the premises, Dos Caminos. You pass as a guy, I as pregnant. Our waiter cheerfully tells us about his family, expresses delight in ours. On the surface, your body seems as though it's becoming more and more male and mine more and more female. But that's not how it feels on the inside. On the inside, we are two human animals undergoing transformations beside each other, bearing each other loose witness. In other words, we are aging. <laughs> <laughs> kind of taking a swerve here. Many women describe the feeling of having a baby come out of their vaginas, taking the biggest shit of their lives. <laughs> this isn't really a metaphor. The anal cavity and the vaginal canal lean on each other. They, too, are the sex, which is not one. <laughs> That's a good crowd. They know about the sex, which is not one. All right. Constipation is one of pregnancy's principal features. The growing baby literally deforms and squeezes the lower intestines, changing the shape, flow, and plausibility of one species. In late pregnancy, I was amazed to find that my shit, when it would finally emerge, had been deformed into Christmas tree ornament-type balls. And then all through my labor, I could not shit at all as it was keenly clear to me that letting go of this shit would mean the total disintegration of my perineum, anus, and vagina at one time. <laughs> I also knew that if or when I could let go of this shit, the baby would also probably come out. But to do so would mean falling forever, going to pieces. In perusing the question and answer sections of pregnancy magazines at my OBGYN's office before giving birth, 
I learned that a surprising number of women have a related but distinct concern about shit in labor. Either that or the magazine editors are making this up as a kind of projective propaganda. <laughs> Question. If my husband watches me labor, how will he ever find me sexy again, now that he's seen me involuntarily defecate in my vagina accommodate a baby's head? <laughs> this question confuses me. Its description of labor does not strike me as exceedingly distinct from what happens during sex, <laughs> or at least some sex, or at least much of the sex I've heretofore taken to be good. <laughs> no one in the magazine asks, how does one submit to falling forever to going to pieces? It's a question from the inside. In current girl culture, I've noted the ascendancy of the phrase, I need X like I need a dick in my ass. <laughs> Meaning, of course, that X is precisely what you don't need. Dick in my ass, hole in my head, fish with the bicycle, and so on. <laughs> I'm all for girls feeling empowered to reject sexual practices they don't enjoy. <laughs> and God knows many straight adolescent boys will be more than happy to stick it in any hole, even on their purse. I worry that such expressions only underscore, this is Sedgwick quoting, the ongoing absence of a discourse of female anal eroticism, the flat fact that since classical times there has been no important and sustained Western discourse in which women's anal eroticism means, means anything, end quote. Sedgwick did an enormous amount to put women's anal eroticism <laughs> on the map, even though she was mostly into spanking, which is not precisely speaking an anal pursuit. <laughs> but while Sedgwick and Susan Freeman, who I've discussed earlier, want to make space for what women's anal eroticism to mean, that is not the same as inquiring into how it feels. Even ex-ballerina Tony Bentley, who knocked herself out to become the culture's go-to girl for anal sex in her memoir, The Surrender, can't seem to write a sentence about ass-fucking without obscuring it via metaphor, bad puns, or spiritual striving. <laughs> and Susan Freeman exalts the female anus mostly for what it is not, the procreative vagina, presumably a lost cause for the sodomite. I am not interested in an hermeneutics or an erotics or a metaphorics of my anus. I am interested in ass-fucking. I'm interested in the fact that the clitoris, disguised as a discrete button, Scripts over the entire area like a manta ray, impossible to tell where its 8,000 nerves begin and end. I am interested in the fact that the human anus is one of the most innervated, which is not enervated, it's mm -hmm. the opposite, innervated parts of the body, as Mary Roach explained to Terry Gross in a perplexing piece of radio <laughs> that I listened to while driving Iggy home from his 12-month vaccinations. I check on Iggy periodically in the rearview mirror for signs of a vaccine-induced neuromuscular breakdown, while Roach explains, quote, that the anus has got tons of nerves, and the reason it, need, it is is that it needs to be able to discriminate by feel between solid, liquid, and gas, and to be able to selectively release one or maybe all of those. <laughs> and thank heavens for the anus, because, you know, really, a lot of gratitude, ladies and gentlemen, to the human anus. <laughs> to which Terry Gross replies, Let's take a short break here. <laughs> this is fresh air. <laughs> a few months after Florida, you always wanting to fuck, raging with new hormones and new comfort in your skin. Me vaulting fast into the unfuckable, not wanting to dislodge the hard-won baby scene, falling through the bed with dizziness whenever I turn my head, falling forever, all touch starting to sicken, as if the cells of my skin are individually nauseated. That hormones can make the feel of wind or the feel of fingers on one's skin change from arousing to nauseating 
is a mystery deeper than I can track or fathom. The mysteries of psychology pale in comparison, just as evolution strikes me as infinitely more spiritually profound than Genesis. Our bodies grow stranger to ourselves, to each other. You sprout coarse hair in new places, new muscles fan out across your hip bones. My breasts are sore for a year, and while they don't hurt anymore, they still feel like they belong to someone else, and in a sense, they really do. For years you were stone, now you strip your shirt off whenever you feel like it, go running without it, swimming even. Via tea, you experience surges of heat and adolescent budding, your sexuality coming down from the labyrinth of your mind and disseminating like a cottonwood tree in a warm wind. You like the changes, but you also feel them as a sort of compromise, a wager for visibility, as in your drawing of a ghost who proclaims, without this sheet, I would be invisible. Visibility makes possible but it also disciplines. It disciplines gender and it disciplines genre. Via pregnancy, I have my first sustained encounter with the pendulous, the slow, the exhausted. Now that my vagina has turned itself inside out, I don't like to think about anything big going in, whereas before I was a glutton for filling. It's, I'm still healing. Our bodies are just starting to find each other again. And yet they, or we, have also been right here all along. fisherman found an orange dildo inside a large cod. There may be a frustrated wife who threw the dildo overboard, Bjorn Freiland mused, but all sorts of stories are equally likely. Poems happen. Even out of the thorns, Daniel Tiffany writes, the robber swallows up, my ration swallows hard on the hook. Through honeycomb, Daniel Tiffany writes, the sting of business. The fish and the dildo, or the story and another story, say the robber and the writer, or the bee and the bonnet, or the couplet, abundant in Neptune Park, Daniel Tiffany's most recent collection of poetry, a suburban ruin as foreign as deep ocean, as beautiful as the chance encounter of a sewing machine and an umbrella on an operating table. There is no sexual symbolism, Deleuze and Guattari insist, and the sexuality does not designate another economy another politics, but rather the libidinal unconscious of political economy as such. Or, you can't tell me Daniel Tiffany's poems are not love poems. For Hart and Negri, love is a biopolitical event. They write, not only does it mark rupture with the existent and creation of the new, but also it is the production of singularities and the composition of singularities in a common relationship. Tiffany glitches the blues, soaps, surf slang, mock epics, nursery rhymes, and fairy tales. He snuggles up to kitched out microaggressions that can nonetheless prick Adam's limp finger to the bone, saying, where is your God now? They have closed the <laughs> gate to gods and fakers, Tiffany writes, and Neptune Park is inhabited by Alice and Tinkerbell, teens and queers, starlets and academic theorists, glory holes and shame fullness, all of which seem to transubstantiate 
in demonic refrain or Greek chorus, the phoenix of Dido, founder of Carthage, who died for love by self-immolation. If Daniel Tiffany walks with impunity as he writes of Dido, it is because, as usual, she has placed her somatic vehicles between parentheses. Everyone on earth feels a tickling at the heels, the small chimpanzee and the great Achilles alike, Kafka cautions. Every time Tiffany's poems walk towards stability, they turn incendiary, in language, in line break, in subjectivity. Tiffany writes, you look like somebody, just turns you loose. What to make of this? How to deal? Sometimes <laughs> the poems seem anxious. But for the leprosy of things, I could see the river, a long way off my silver. Other times, it seems jubilant. On her ass, a school for singing. I should tell you that Daniel Tiffany's previous collections of poetry include The Dandelion Clock, Tin Fish Books, 2010, Pravada Action Books, also 2010, and Puppet Wardrobe, Parlor Press, 2006. I should tell you that his fifth book of criticism, My Silver Planet, A Secret History of Poetry <coughs> and Kitsch, was published by John Hopkins University Press this year. But I want to just keep on thinking Daniel Tiffany in loving relation to Michael Tossick, <laughs> who champions mimetic excess, a tactic, as he writes, for combining sensuousness with copy in order to, quote, provide the immersion in the concrete necessary to break definitively from the fetishes and myths of commodified practices of freedom. Yeah, I think Daniel Tiffany's poetry does that. <laughs> Tiffany poses a next nature in which all of the its and infidels endowed with desire rise up like a swollen sea creature and claim their desire as such. In Neptune Park, the subject does not express the system. The subject is the expression of the system. All patio furniture goes into the pool saying, we are building a castle. I mustn't forget that Tiffany has translated Sophocles to Bataille, has received the Chicago Review Poetry Prize, a winning fellowship, and the American Academy's Berlin Prize. But I'd rather keep thinking Tiffany plus Leotard, who writes, love, that is to say intensity, should pass onto the skins of words, sounds, colors, culinary tastes, animal smells, and perfumes. This is a dissimulation we will not escape. This is anxiety, and this is what we must will. Yes, perhaps this is what Tiffany wills when he describes Neptune Park as graphic, which is not to say visual. Daniel Tiffany, I love you because I love Will Wayne, the general strike, household gods, two faces under one hood, dioramas, pixies, James and the giant peach, cake, cake and honey, my Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme. I want to start giving a fuck to every body I meet. Here is a fuck, here is another. Go fish in the plasticity of the deep blue sea where Neptune's poetics creates a cybernetics a second-order system able to monitor and correlate its own behavior to others, mobile across space and time. Donna Haraway insists that second-order systems require a witness. And this is where you, dear listeners, dear thinkership, come into play. Please help me welcome Daniel Tiffany. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
I just wanted to say, first of all, thank you to, to Ben Dollar uh, for um, uh, inviting me down here and creating this, what seems like just an amazing series and a little vortex down here in San Diego. It's, you know, you're all really, really lucky that Ben uh, spent all the time and, you know, energy to do this. It's really a great gift, so I'm really happy to be, you know, just, just coming down the coast from L.A. and. Um, uh, and, I'm, and I'm really thrilled to be living, uh, reading with Maggie. I, I felt like, um, you know, I, I felt my first thought was thrilled to be reading with her because uh, our, our work felt so different to me. And yet I realized when I listened to what she read this afternoon about her great negative capability, um, you know, her just, you know, Terrorist, you know these kind of uh, instincts. So I, I felt, I feel, it's a wonderful opportunity. I think to to have, as Ben has done here, put a couple of writers together that that sound uh, and, and and tonally may may sound very different. But so it raises lots of interesting questions. So I'm really I'm really thrilled to be reading with Maggie and to have heard that piece, which is thrilling and and um, and and I guess what it, part of what it does for me is it raises questions about worlding. Describing worlds, uh, making worlds, destroying worlds, um, and and also her comment about um, you know at, at just before she began reading about I'm you know I'm not there's nothing really to say about this it's I'm not you know I'm not going to say anything about this and my feeling that in some sense that my work uh, you know that I, I I always feel I need to say something you know that, and, and which suggests that in some sense it's it's inexplicit. And, um, but I love that 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 contrast in some sense that that question of what you know what one must say outside the work or whether one wants or not wants to not wants to do that and so I, I will say just a few things about these poems. Um, one is that uh, there I, I'm I began to feel a kind of um, identity a kind of geographical identity about living and writing in LA for a long time and thinking about some of these poems in, as a kind of noirish um, series of tableaus that I felt uh, was very much related to other genres that noir has a much more prominent relationship to, um, uh, kind of B movies and pulp um, kind of work, and so I and and which does not have, uh, which is not something that poetry has attempted very often. So, um, and um, so that was one part of it. But I, I also began to realize that that was part of a kind of um, detournement, a, a kind of Situationist gesture, and it helped me to sort of see this as a kind of uh, uh, kind of a detour, uh, straying, uh, and a word that Ben mentioned today, a kind of deprogramming of lyric. And so that one of the ways that that happens in these poems is that in, it, that formally there's a very um, tight uh, uh, kind of form. They're mostly written in couplets and tercets, which is a you know a high signature of lyric, and yet. The, the 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 diction, um, which comes back to this question of tone, um, that that um, that, um, that was raised by by Maggie's work, that that in terms of the diction, much of it is borrowed and sampled and sort of um, foraged from a lot of non-lyrical sources, from YA novels and biblical uh, proverbs and instruction manuals of various kinds and blues lyrics and. Uh, Mother Goose, um, 
and that there's a kind of wild kind of fluctuation in terms of um, uh, debased and elevated tones. So, so that 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 detournement has something to do with, and, and that devaluing of lyric or, or, or over over turning of it has something to do with uh, working with this very strong uh, kind of form, tercets and couplets, and um, and then working with diction uh, that that um, that. That, that I forged. Um, so, um, enough of that. Um, Do you want to have a No, it's cool. I just have to find the right You can turn that over. So, this is called Henry Chick Never Killed a Man. Smoky, smoky tongue. My beach plum preserve. Where do they go? You won't find a tea room in Spain or France. It don't come in jars in Spain or France. For what is to be hath already been. I'm writing an ode to the nail parlor girls and the doxy fumes. Her soul is so hooked. I saw two sparrows run a race. I saw two horses making lace. She won't think it's nothing strange. A dream comes through. An alibi for sale, through honeycomb, the sting of business. Her face is covered, her back is bare. Something tapping my neck, don't know how to act. Barn a soul on you. That's what he said. This is called Day, Days of Wet Orion. The party starts in one hour. Look for me under the tulip tree. A little ship needs but a little sail. Yellowish vertigo, spout of angels, raw rum and sudden noons. With directions worthy of a cook. I knew by that way we got of losing everything. We could barely stand the night's glare to carry two faces under one hood. Beggars would ride. Children to bed and the goose to the fire. I knew. Someone was putting her up, and buying her clothes and stuff. I met her twin on the corner. You know about that. This is called due diligence. <clears throat> His fingers have 12 years of piano behind them. From what rustic and debauched minds do you inherit such a pitiful name of diamonds? Hence the name. My sister threw a lit candle at me, for I had lingered a moment too long. All hypothetical, of course. Why mention ships burned by the shore at Trestles? Walk the streets all, walk the streets all night. Oh, the racetrack is a dusty place, and the cuckoo is a flying bird. He hollers when he flies. Pretty sure that Corona girl, Dido, gave me something last night. Um, and this is called number four, staring him in the face. It even has a spare fishing rod. 
and apparently grows a piece of bait when it is, if it is brought into use. So I spent the first 19 minutes spinning around and one minute licking the wall, never to have read Voltaire and Rousseau, visible only by the darkest green of their shadows. You can't make anyone do anything. Argon turns into chlorine, xenon into fluorine. And there's the devil behind the glass, doing something funny with his hands, everyone watching. Said to traffic in the silkworm of the sea, capable of being woven into a lawn from which gloves and under things used to be made. Let others bow down upon her. She dresses for the ball, no matter what. Your sister, a mirror with all the upgrades. Zero reset, double turbulon, monster flyback. German silver, silver everything. One of the coolest ways on the planet to walk a big Mercedes. And it's totally private. A girl's only evening. Now this is called fronting. Mostly the creeps turn away so as to not see us. A repeated phrase glitters on the threshold. My boyfriends drink out of a dark green puddle. What is man that thou should magnify him? Then to, then to, then to. The Bardo girls listen for strangers back home. Lucky that grimy curtain doesn't do much to hide the bed. Pepper, three-way, now your poppy bower syndrome. Not all there to feel the pranks my boyfriends have in store for me. Uh, this is called Lightning and Fur. What's, what's with me in this morning? <laughs> Lightning and Fur. Tis pity thou art not a bit more tongue-tied. Here comes a candle to light you to bed. The sky comes down and howls from stories of wolves echo through the night. I might start shimmering. Don't let nobody in. The girl in the lane who can't speak plain cries, Cobble, cobble, cobble. And when I use the word cereal, I mean, I've stolen a hat from every guy who's followed me home, except the last one. I mean, Colorado Blackie has a black rind. I mean, the oink in the moon. I am referring, of course, to that epigrammatic turn this conversation is taking. I don't need no made-up panic. When the stormy kids we call stars rise thick as hail, I sometimes ask a question and answer it myself. It is surprising, I admit, to have to reason with oneself in prison in order to be sad. And when I say complete whore, I mean the kid leather apron 
encircling his waist, the patch of high burden upon his cap. Mock epic. I think I just scared a bird with my dick. <clears throat> this is called Touching Topics. Every night about four, or it might be half past, friends dig through the houses they mark for themselves. Fling down the nests and the gall will be done, felling an oak to set up a strawberry. No more than the world can take. You look like somebody just turned you loose. A flying enemy makes a silver bridge doing a little old something else. That's the way the bare-footed soul does. As round as an apple, as deep as a pail, it never cries out till it's caught by the tail. Crying when it does without. Now learn to lose. Not Keats in a letter drafting children's midnight junkets. I chose the walnut, whose fruiting body, like a ball of twine or the untidy turban, is known to me. And this is called I Can Explain. <clears throat> He'll give them a slap on the buttocks to calm them down. The weakest go to the wall. I ask no wild a rushing. And the sound of a shaken leaf shall chase them, and they shall fall when none pursueth. No one seemed to know how long he had been among the diggers, not without binary residues, barring functional slash animistic criteria. I knew he was the guide. Skin man's hollering, passing right by my doors, crying, if I don't carry you, carry somebody else. <clears throat> and this is, a, um, this is one of the poems that Dido um, shows up in, and uh, um, it, it, this was kind of a, a kind of primal scene of the book for me. I, I saw a, a production of um, the Worcester Street Theater uh, that was a kind of a mashup of um, a, a, an opera, late 17th century opera called La Didone about Dido, and then this kind of Italian sci-fi TV uh, kind of dialogue, and it, and it was quite an, an amazing production, and and, and that um, hit me, and, and I think this poem um, sort of uh, gives part of part of the effect of that for me. This is called "How Many Days Can You Live on Vicodin and Frosty?" <laughs> Poor thing, she holds him on her lap, the godless hidden god, causing the, the lips causing the lips of those that sleep to speak, cold shadow of the white acanthus in its tiptoe dance. Buy the truth and sell it not. A lion is in the streets. There is a lion in the way. My niece, the little siren, taught her the slang. Mad 
married fiance. Dido has a quiver. She wears a spotted lynx skin and a belt. My undefiled is not herself tonight. But one thing's forever. I just saw the video explaining the neighborhood applause, a book of anthems where sirens plunge into the gold of the initials at that karaoke party for her boyfriend. We cooked up while the goodies and fawns come through the windows. That's her thing. I like this path to darkness, she keeps saying. Whatever party fame's doing to her, chances for a quick trial. Barbarella can't touch her Goldilocks. That dog don't bird for she coming back or not. And <clears throat> before I finish, I'm going to sort of drop into uh, some poems from uh, a book called The Dandelion Clock, and there are um, I sort of think them, and they work off of the same kind of method, but they're much, the, the sources are much tighter and they're much smaller. They're short six-line poems, and they, um, most of them start with a kind of scrap of Middle English uh, lyric, and then they're sort of grafted on to uh, scraps of African-American song and bits of dialogue from Huckleberry Finn. But they're, anyway, they're, they're, short six-line poems, uh, all of them without titles. I stole a cos of great sweetness, but it is done, not undone, now. Forty pounds of honey gone over a chucked box, hushed honey house, the bees still thinking. And else I axed at old trespass. Circling the drain, Captain, Captain, where would the galloping ghost gallop tonight? Skin begins to crawl, and my left side jumps. Thrustle cock him threateth, oh, the moan blandeth her glee. Go play the piano ghost, as <coughs> for me, a little piece. Thy fell and thy white throat shall in worms to note. Smoked glass here for all. Don't try to look at me with the naked eye, gentlemen. Take a cheer. Worms wowin' under cloud. Ah, 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 ah. Chopper burlap in the smoker only other real friend you'll find in the bee yard. Through false egging, called the hogs ingots, he called the turnips and stuff jewelry. A blazing stick he called a slogan. The stones for to breaken, I said, God, what is this end? She smiling all over so she could hardly stand. Run along and smooch the knives, three of them. Death, that is undear. Think on the pines of hell. She done it too. 
and she done it beautiful. One of the mixed upest persons I ever see. Grasses sour and sweet. I like the old way best, but I was getting so I liked the new ones too, bit. The listening winds, will you be there? Mend the fire. I call it square, and be glad of the chance to ransack that air, house over strawberries and such trunk. Child, rest be a throw, for then thy body is bleak and black. The clock's on the shelf going tick, tick, tick. Want to go to heaven? Got to stop this stuff. And then I'm just going to read a couple more poems from Neptune Park. This is called Ducey Biome. So much trouble floating in the air. Not an owl now, scratchy bourbon. Her name trailing after that plantation in that book, burnt and about as easy to find. I've got a new way of spelling sweet old Doozyville. Soaking goose liver in honey and milk makes it larger. Then you scare me with dreams so that my soul chooses strangling like a drifter likes the shadow I know I got some friends. I know I got some friends don't mess by the ditch at night. This is called Tom Tunnel. Because we can't take that autistic girl we're babysitting on a blunt ride, on tiptoe stealing chips and stuff. Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird. All the patio furniture goes into the pool saying, we are building a castle. My friend wasn't home. It's all coming back to me. Dusty gowns, unbuttoned boots. We couldn't get her to the clinic in time. Her dad went crazy. The sun came up. Somebody scrawled on my door. The short drunk lives here. People always coming over, such a shy, unshy girl. This is called Flesh at War with Enigma. <clears throat> Moonlight will make you think the streetcar is a toy. Ask the elm tree for pears. Burning for burning, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. With every Neptune fix, a tumbler creams another seahorse. Blossom fret, the blanch, the blanchette. Greetings destroy the heart. And now I am their soul. Things too rich for me. I should remind everyone that there are books, and I, uh, 
Are you up to answer some yes. group questions? This should be very interesting. So <laughs> let's see what we got. Uh, you want chairs? Yeah, you want some chairs? I have no, also. Um, hold these. Yeah, that's great. Maybe we can hand this piece of technology between each other. Oh, great. Okay. I think we can hear each other's questions. Though. Okay, so, cool. Uh, okay. Here, you want to start? Boom. Let's see. because I, I, I don't, um, I just came from a meeting before I drove down here, we're planning this And Now conference, which you guys hosted a while back, and you know, they were like, what's the topic for our big round table? And it was gonna be like, is genre, you know, state of genre? And I was like, I, I, I was like, it can't be that question because I just can't address this anymore. Not your question per se, but I think for me, it just, you know, it's a question that I feel like called upon to answer a lot, but I'm, I'm intermittently honestly right now because I've, I've tried a lot of different angles at the question and it's like, it really is just like the latter that you described. It's like, it's like, you know, it, it just is like there, there are books or thoughts or impulses or whatever that, I, that, that come through me and I, I never think about genre. I don't even think, I mean like a book like The Art of Cruelty, say, which now has like a little like art criticism or cultural criticism stamp on it, you know, like that began sounding just like what I read to you tonight, like kind of like rants about billboards in my neighborhood or something and like, it, you know, really depends, like it's just really more like as it comes closer to becoming itself, like at publication time, kind of looking it over and seeing, you know, what somebody else wants to say about the thing that I eventually made, you know. Um, but, you know, I think that said, I just, you know, I, you know, I teach in a writing program that and maybe like you guys do a little bit, but valorizes, you know, something we often talk about is hybridity. And I, I you know, I'm super into that. Like, super cool like yay hybrid but stuff you know but I think also because I did come up as a poet like I do also recognize that like my poetry is different from my prose uh, exploration sometimes even though there's crossover so I'm not necessarily like a writer who even though I think I do a lot of different things I don't often try and mash them all up in the same space per se which I think is a little bit different from um, a particular kind of interest in the hybrid that would always want to you know put pictures in or take it off the page or have parts that are prose and parts that are poetry. You know, usually I get really into the sound of a piece, kind of like the sound of my voice in that piece and have to see, you know, just where that takes me in terms of its form. Biggest risk you guys have taken that's paid off for writing in terms of publishing? Mm -hmm. 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 That's a good question. Uh, I guess for me, it, I, yeah, it was, um, it was sort of the, the a moment in, in terms of poetry, I guess there were a couple things. One, which was just simply, 
that I stopped writing about things. I stopped having any sense that the poems I was writing were were about anything. I mean, that I, I, I could never have, I could never explain or to anybody where this poem come from. They, they just don't come from anywhere, and they're, they're not related. Mm -hmm. So that, that didn't feel like very much of a risk. It, it was something that I think, um, like I said, it felt that a, a risk quite long after I stopped doing it, <laughs> after I made that change. Then it started quite a long time afterwards. Then it started feeling a little frightening to me, because I felt like I hadn't. And um, I guess the other thing for me, just because I, I, I write criticism and, uh, and, and poetry, and, and, I, and I have been, you know, my, my career and what I did was primarily, um, you know, my, my public profile was related to criticism. And I just was terribly nervous forever, for, for really a long time, and still am somewhat nervous, but about the relationship between the two. And I, I just was sort of petrified by that. And now I feel less uh, anxious about talking about them and the relationship between them. Because I see that other people can't always see them in relationship to one another. People always respond to one or the other work now. So I, I feel, that, so that risk, so being able to think about them and not feeling worried that I was going to betray one or the other or destroy one or the other mm -hmm. was Was your question particularly about publishing, or do you, or just in general, like a risk? Question? No, in general. Like in yeah. general. Yeah. yeah. Whatever you like. Yeah. Want. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Whatever you want. Whatever you want it to be. I mean, maybe this is a you know a brief story that might be useful because a lot of you guys are in writing program and you're kind of like <coughs> trying to give yourself permission to write what you might already know you want to write, but there's like crap in your way about just committing to it. And I think when I wrote this book called Jane and Murder, which is about my mother's sister's murder. Um, it was weird because I had just grown up knowing about this murder, but it was like in my imagination, Jane stood as like the young woman who goes after what she wants. And somehow in my mind, I kind of did a quick segue to, and she got two bullet holes in her head, you know? Like it was just like a really, um, it was a really unconscious equation until I kind of unburied it now to be able to give it to you in that very pithy statement. But I think my fear about writing about her, which was very dramatic, because the fear was that her murder was unsolved, so writing it, I would maybe stir him up, <laughs> um, which actually happened. <laughs> um, it's, it's not that directly, but that's a long story. But um, but yeah, <laughs> but um, but I think that I, I mean, it seemed very perverse at the time that like you'd write a poetry book and that might happen. But I think it was like you know, seeing this kind of boogeyman person out there that was like going to you know assure my destruction if I actually just became the writer I wanted to be. It took me like eight years to write that book, Jane, because I would like write a little bit towards it and then I would feel terrified that I'd write a little bit towards it and then I'd feel afraid, you know? And I think once I finished it and it came out and then actually it did kind of summon up some other action, it's not in and of itself, just karmically or something, you know, in the world around that case. Um, I just felt like I came out of all that like a changed person, like kind of willing to, to, to take on almost anything in my writing and, so that was very, that was kind of like a young adulthood portal for me when I was in my 20s. Um, I All of those uh, theorists that you mentioned that are sort of in vogue now that you were kind of tearing down a few types, are, are you still fond of any of them? Like, Kristeva, like, she kind of deals a lot with it. Yeah. Oral and 
yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I pick and choose from everybody. You know, I think I guess it's more a little bit like, um, you know, I was just thinking about this. You know, I, this might come out as like more contentious than I mean to be, but I was just thinking about, you know, like things about Heidegger, Paul de Mann, and things like that, and diff different histories about their involvement with certain, you know, with, with Nazism proper, or, you know, um, and I, I think that, I guess to me a little bit, I just find it, I mean, I'm not really, it's the contentious part is I'm not making any equivalence here whatsoever. I guess it's just to me interesting that, you know, you can say almost anything about there's certain categories about women or transgender people or all kinds of things. Um, <laughs> That, that, that don't disqualify the philosophy from being taken very seriously. And I guess I just feel like, well, let's just let's just put this on the page and say, like, hey, you know, like if there are certain categories of people who are kind of like it's like left for open poaching, you know, but you still get to like you know ride this high. I just think that we need to like have those moments be more public. So I feel like in that sense, I'm just kind of not letting them be like shoved into the shadow, you know, in that way. But it doesn't mean that I don't get something out of you know, I mean, I mean, that's the whole thing about code switching, right? It's like we have to, we read and have to get things from everything, no matter what, you know, anybody said from, you know, Plato to whomever, but it's like, um, but I, so I think that, you know, there's like people like take knocks, but they're still present, you know, and their names are still there, which is maybe more than I can, I can't even occasionally want to give them, but, you know. I was curious about when you were you no, know, introduced, if those, if the theorists that were mentioned were, you know, like whether those theories were interesting or important to you, or whether or not that's, or that's or not, not so much. Like who are you? I don't know, just all the people that she was reading about in her introduction. I mean, I just I don't know if that was, if she was taking that from different moments in your work, or I don't know. Yeah, I, I, you know, I thought of that as her, I'm sorry, what is your name? I'm Kendall. Kendall. <laughs> Kendall's uh, universe, not at all that it was not part of mine as well, but it was part of mine because it was, there was this theory, this sympathetic relationship to theory, which felt. But I, you know, it was interesting that you said these theorists in vogue, uh, Kristeva, Deleuze, you know, et cetera. And I immediately wanted to say uh, theorists that are no longer in vogue. Yeah. And I was someone like Maggie, probably, who was trained in theory and, you know, my whole worldview is and way. And I'm, I, you know, so what, what's really interesting is continuing for me to evoke or cite theorists that are clearly, increasingly uh, becoming objects of, you know, a ridicule, I mean, if not scorn or outright hatred like Demon, but objects of kind of silly figures um, because of the sort of twilight, or I mean, it's not even the twilight of theory, it's, it's been completely eclipsed. And it makes me very aware of my own historical thing that, that one goes on citing these people sort of long after almost a generation or almost two of people have moved away from those. And there's another kind of theorizing going on which feels like a very different kind of theory, but I always makes me think, you know, can I listen? Can I only listen to these theorists, you know, in my own head? Or can I really listen to, you know, generations of theorists that come after my own formation? And so, and I just become very self-conscious about my moment, and just the fact that I can't really renounce that, mm -hmm. and I have to, you know, I, I, you know, my fate is theirs, you know, if they become mm -hmm. objects of ridicule, and so do I, in some sense. But, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it's interesting too, like which people, because I feel like that a lot. I mean, I kind of second a lot of that feeling, and I think that. Um, 
you know, having spent the morning with a student telling me what, you know, triple O is, you know, object-oriented ontology, <laughs> maybe like, oh, crap, I'm really, don't, tell me more, tell me more, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, so I know I'm pretty out of it, but I also think there are people, like you, Cedric, you know, that, that to me, like, there, there are certain people whom, every time I go back to reading, and Joy and I have been trading back and forth this touching theory. <laughs> We've kept it hostage around <laughs> for a long time, but, like, there are certain people who, they have a, they have a, they have many, like, I just don't get tired of reading, like where I go back to it and I go, God, you know, I, I didn't know she was talking about systems theory, I thought she was talking about Buddhism, or I didn't know she was, you know, like, depending on what I'm into, I suddenly get a lot more out of it, and so I am interested in encounters like that, um, which of course, you know, can happen at any point, you know, you, you know even with the, the outlet, yes, unfashionable, unfashionable yeah, exactly, and I think it's, you know, it's very, it's very typical, maybe theory is more cannibalistic and other things where it tends to, because it's kind of, it's, it has an academic relationship and academics are always trying to like point out your blind spot and one-up themselves on them or whatever, so I guess I, I don't participate in that. But right, I don't, I, with French, I don't participate in that, like I'm off the map of that, that relationship to, to theory, so it's a much more kind of horizontal field to me to pick and choose from than it is like I'm not looking for somebody's blind spots to give a more scrupulous, up-to-date argument. Like that's not my my bag at all. It's not polemics. No, not polemics. Uh, maybe one more question, or you do it. <laughs> well, I'd love to hear you talk all day, but <laughs> I think we could go do that somewhere else. So. Right. Thank you very much.